the first part to me is if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Painstaking means that we have to go to the meetings to find out what the steps mean and how we get them from our head to our heart. And that's the longest journey is the 12 inches from your head to the heart. But once we start and we get a little bit of it, then we want more. And it says we're going to know that this new freedom and a new happiness, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We find out that Alcoholics Anonymous says we want you to be happy, joyous, and free. But if you're an alcoholic, we say, no, thanks. I like the pain. I'm talking about me in early days in AA because I had a lot of pain. And, and I suffered from it until I gave in to God. And the promises were that I could change my whole life and I can help others to do the same thing. And that's the most important thing to me. See, we, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away, which means I get outside of myself. I don't need to be in Bob Katie. I don't need to think that I'm great. I don't need to think anything. I'm just a fellowship member. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wherever God puts me in each and every day is where I'm going to go. And they're not always the same. And whoever comes to say they want to talk to me for a minute, I'm able to go to the promises and let them know what can happen long before they probably even do the steps. And I say, if you do the steps, the person you're changing is you. You're not changing anybody else. Yeah. And that's the most important because when you change that and you find out God is everything or nothing at all, then you got the promise, which means now we have to go out and share with the other person. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 51. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. Our goal is to entertain you and enrich your life with tools that will help you make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program and the recovery it has brought me and my family. I started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories I have been hearing in recovery meetings for decades and wanted to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad you're here and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you to enjoy. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. Thank you for your consideration. My email address is Mike at SoberShares.com. Please reach out to me with your listener feedback, questions, or show ideas. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they wish. My name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober one day at a time since December the 7th, 1962. All right. Congratulations. That's a long time. 60 years. I saw you pick up your 60-year chip a couple weeks ago. Yes, you did. That's fantastic. I'm so proud of you. How old are you? 80? 85. 85 years old, 60 years sober. This is going to be a treat for our audience, and I'm super excited that you're here today. Can you tell us about the early years of your life? What did your family look like, and where were you born? I was born in Toronto, Ontario, oh. Canada. February the 9th, 1937. My parents' names were George and Gladys Cady. My father was a printer. 
By the time I was about seven years old, he had five printing companies and we moved to Windsor because General Motors was one of his biggest accounts. And uh, so he set up an office up there and he had three partners and the other three stayed in Toronto. And he moved us to Windsor because he did all his business in Detroit. Excellent. I've, I've known I'm going to be interviewing you for a few days, so I want to ask you a few questions. Sure. I've heard, I heard you on another podcast, and you talked about your hockey playing experience. I'm mm-hmm. a huge hockey fan. Can you talk to me about your hockey experience? <clears throat> well, if you're from Canada, the first thing you get before you learn how to walk is skates and a hockey stick. And you get out on the streets, and you throw a puck around, and you skate on the ponds until you're about eight years old when you get into school they had uh, arenas and we'd have arena teams and everybody got a chance to start out and you know whittles down people are eliminated because they can't do it and i was blessed that i was able to go right through the whole system through public school and high school and i played for uh, an industrial game where it was industries different uh, companies had their own team and we played And then I was uh, sentenced to the Navy when I was 18, and I was on their hockey team for five years. Wow, the Canadian Navy hockey team? Mm -hmm. Wow, what position did you play? I played, uh, well, left wing at the beginning, and at the end, I gained a little weight, so I was on the defensive end. (laughs) (laughs) And I was uh, what they called a very crazy hockey player, because I did not like anybody to get near the net. Oh, really? Did you you fight? Did you throw fists? Uh, Well, we'll put it this way. I was called Penalty Bob. I weighed 265 pounds at that time, and uh, a lot of it was overweight, but I could throw it around. Canadians are known to be like super nice. What's that all about? Do you agree with that? Yes, I do, because I, uh, I've been blessed to travel uh, in my business. I was in sales, and I was blessed to come to America with an American company, and I covered all the United States and all of Canada. Canadians just off the bat, everybody is friendly. We don't have any competition between the provinces or anything or anybody. And you go to your church and you do the church thing with everybody and everybody's associated with through the week. And that's how it was in Canada when I was growing up. We had tons of friends. And I mean, they were really good friends, not just in the neighborhood, but all around Toronto because my father was in business and Back in those days, when they came to visit, even if they were just friends, they brought the children so the children would go outside and play, not bug the adults. And so we got to know a lot of people going to school. Uh, I was a problem in school. I was at a, a high school called Riverside High School, where I lived in Riverside, which was the, where all the wealthy people lived. And it's not that we were greatly wealthy, but we were well enough off to be living there. And uh, because of my behavior, I was sentenced to Assumption High School, which is a Roman Catholic high school run by the priests. And from that time on, my life got a little sad. (laughs) What were your thoughts about spirituality growing up? It sounds like you went to religious-based schooling. What were your thoughts about what they were telling you and teaching you? Do you believe it? Well, I believed it, but I believed it as a child. Like, you know, we, we never talked about it. My mother and father talked about it. They prayed. They made our children, us, my sister and I, pray every night and every morning before we went to school. But it didn't mean the same when I was a child as it did as I got older in my life. 
I mean, it was a, a, a process that we had to do. I didn't know God that well, but I knew that I was praying to a power greater than myself. When did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? I was 14 years old and there was a guy in Assumption who had a pint and we were outside in the playground and he offered me some of it and I took a mouthful and here that has never left my life. It went into my mouth, it went down to my toes, it curled my toes and as I was getting, as it was coming up, I had muscles that I didn't know and all of a sudden my personality changed. That's exactly what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me. I was one year younger than you, I was 13 and I had my first uh, drink of alcohol, it was a Corona in my friend's garage. And I drank that beer. And you know what Corona, I don't know. Maybe you yeah. never drank. You yes, we drank Corona. Yeah, Corona. is like kind of gross, skunky Mexican beer. I didn't like it that much. But I drank it for my first drink. And about 15 minutes later, I had transitioned from a boy to a man. <laughs> Isn't that amazing what alcohol can do to us? I yeah, mean, man. there's so many millions of people that can take a drink and put it down. It doesn't mean anything. Or yeah. they have a couple of drinks and go to uh, uh, a dance and have a good time. And the alcoholic has one drink and then a thousand aren't enough. Yeah, it changed everything for me. Mm -hmm. It changed everything for me. It set me on fire. <laughs> and I was only 13 years old and I was starting to think to myself, that was the most fun I've ever had <laughs> in my life. And I was just in my friend's garage. So imagine how fun it's gonna be when we transition to other areas of our life. And that's the beginning of my uh, drunk log right there. Well, my first drink was at the CYO, which was a Catholic youth organization, and I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, <laughs> and we hate Catholics. Uh, and uh, But I loved them because I learned how to dance, yeah. and I learned a lot about little girls. And uh, I took a drink, and then the drink took a drink, and then the drink took me, and that was all I cared about or wanted right from that moment on I didn't do well in school I got in lots of fights I ended up being sentenced to the Navy because the Army and the Air Force were only three years and the Navy was five years yeah <clears throat> and in the five years there I went to military prison twice Wow how, how quickly did you uh, transition to, to weekly drinking was it that week I mean within a couple of weeks within a couple of weeks all I thought about was what the feeling was and it was not a feeling that you would really think about but it came down uh -huh. and it tickled everything in my body and when I came when it came up all of a sudden I was big and I was strong yeah. and I didn't have to take anything from anybody yeah same thing happened to me man I noticed that I could I was no longer afraid of girls mm -hmm. and I was you know kind of terrified of chicks before that and uh, I quickly transitioned into a uh, I don't know I don't know about a ladies man but I was certainly not scared to talk to him anymore I mean I rolled right up on him I had that fake courage I had that alcohol in me it was that had those beer muscles and that <laughs> fake courage and it changed my life and I had a lot of fun for a long time. Um, how did you secure alcohol as a minor? Was it pretty easy or did you have to run a lot of tricks to secure alcohol as oh, a minor? No, it wasn't in, in Riverside, alcohol, everybody, they were all pretty wealthy people and alcohol was available to everybody and we could steal it from our father's ca cabinets. And I hung around with a lot of <laughs> my mother and father, they hated 
Roman Catholics. They just think they were all ready to go to hell, and the only people that were going to go to heaven were the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. <clears throat> and I got hooked up at a CYO dance, and a girl danced with me, and she did things to me that I never had done before, and I fell in love with all the Catholic girls. <clears throat> yeah. And I had a few drinks, and... Uh, uh, my parents were waiting for me on the bus to come home, and the bus stopped. I got off the bus and fell on my face, and they were looking at me through a picture window, and they thought I had a heart attack. <laughs> my father said, he's drunk. Uh-huh. And that started it, and from that moment on, I thought alcohol was my best friend. Wow. What did your parents, did your parents ever notice or think about it or try to get your attention with that? That's not a good thing for a 14 year old to be doing. Well, they tried all the time because they knew it wasn't a good thing, but you know, if you're an alcoholic of my sort and alcohol is the only thing that counts, that's great. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to steal it from your home. I'm going to steal your money to get alcohol. It didn't matter to me anymore, and therefore I ended up at, in Assumption High School in my second year in grade 10, and my parents had enough, and they registered me into the Navy because the Navy was five years and the others was only three years. Well, the Canadian Navy served rum on their ships, and that should be the answer to my story. I went all around the world and couldn't tell you one thing about one country. Oh, really? That was, that was my next question. Did, did you have blackouts? Were blackouts a part of your drinking story? All the time. <clears throat> really? Mm-hmm. Did those frighten you at all? No. Really? No. Every single person? When I, I, I don't know, man. When I started this podcast, that's the question I wrote down. It said, did you ever have blackouts? Half the people have said yes that I've interviewed. The other half have said no. But the half that have said yes, I've asked them, did that scare you? Every single one of them has said no. No. Which is shocking to me. Well, you see, the, the, the problem with the alcoholic is they're mesmerized by the alcohol, and it's only the alcohol that's worth living for yeah. because uh, you're not that shy little boy that's going to school. You're not afraid of girls anymore. You're taking charge of your life, and you've only had three drinks, and you're, all of a sudden you go from a little boy to King Kong. You know. <laughs> and they used to call me One Punch Bob, and after the first punch I was on the ground, but I had a lot of fun before they got it in. <laughs> so... I thought you were going to say they called you one punch, Bob, because you would hit people one time and they would get knocked out. No. <laughs> At 137 pounds, the first punch didn't hurt too many people. <laughs> it was the other way around. Yeah. So when did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol and what did you do about that thought? Did that ever occur to you? <clears throat> well, I, I was in the Navy and the Navy served rum on the ships and I would act out after I had the rum because you got a carton of cigarettes uh, everybody got a carton of cigarettes, but I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I sold it for uh, the rum. And so I was pretty high all the time on board the ship. <clears throat> and therefore, you can't hide the alcoholic. I mean, you coming down to the lower decks and you're falling off the ladder, they know something's the matter. Yeah. So I got in a lot of trouble in the Navy and ended up, of course, in military prison. Due to drinking as a direct result of the drinking behavior? Yes. Really? So what was, tell me a little bit about that process. They put you in a, in a court system and then put you in there? Well, what happens is uh, if you're in the military and you're off, off a ship, you're supposed to be back at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And it was 2,300 hours, which is 11 o'clock. 
and I would never make it. Oh my God. I would take a drink and the drink would take a drink. And then I said, oh, I don't need to go back to the ship. Well, you're in Belfast. You've been there for six months. Uh And at the end of it, they were leaving the aircraft carrier and they got halfway out into the sea and realized they had about 300 sailors missing that missed the boat. Oh my God. And it was all due to alcohol. Did the, did the military police come looking for you? Or well, they you? had to bring the ship back to get us. They did. <laughs> <laughs> they came back and said, you 300 get on the boat. Well, they didn't say it quite like that. They yeah. put us in cells. And, did uh, they really? Yeah, they made us do all kinds of duties that needed to be done that weren't really pretty. And the people that were, the 300 of us were the ones that did all that work until we got back to uh to Canada. And then they held a court thing for you? No, by that time they figured we did all the punishment we had to do. But I was blessed that I had gained a lot of weight and I became a rescue number on the aircraft carrier. And I was, uh, I got a couple of big accolades for jumping into a fire on a, on, on board a plane that crashed and pulled two people out. Wow. And that's what, uh, really saved my life because the captain of the ship would always say they'd write a lot of people off and then it was my turn he said Abel Seaman Katie you are blessed to the fact that you saved some of our fellow men and we have to be grateful for that so we're only going to give you 14 days in cells the others were getting 30. Did you get burned or did the other guys get burned? No, no, we were, we had suits on and we were crazy and we just went right in. Would they come down and hit the tail hook and then it, what happened? Well, the thing is they'd hit the tail and then some of them crashed off at the end of the thing. And it was our job to get the pilot out. Uh-huh. And a couple of times in a helicopter, the planes had crashed and I was one of the, well, <laughs> The captain said, we can, we can lose you, Bob. (laughs) So I was on the helicopter and I was lucky that a couple crashed and we were able to pull them out and it looked good. And all the sailors were looking and yelling. I'll put it this way. Everybody knew my name on the aircraft carrier. Wow. Wow. Did you see that movie Top Gun recently, either the first one or the second one? No. No. Okay. I was just curious. It's similar to that. They talk a lot about aircraft carriers and what it's like. Um, did you ever use any special techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking? None. None. Okay. Did you ever go through a period of denial with your drinking? How did you ever come to the actualization that you had a problem and that you needed to do something about it? Well, that is uh, when you're a drunk or you're drinking and you don't go home and alcohol is more important than in life than life, uh, you end up in different places. And I ended up in Skid Row. Well, tell me a little from bit. a wealthy family. And I was married at that time. And my father-in-law was an alcoholic. And we both ended up in Skid Row. And my wife was looking for my her father. And they found me. And they took me out of Skid Row. And he died in Skid Row. And about three weeks later, a voice said to me, call AA. And I called AA. I was 25 years old. Where did that voice come <clears throat> from? And how did you, how did you know about AA? You- I didn't. Really? This voice said, call AA. And I mean, today, I believe it was God that said, Bob, call Alcoholics Anonymous. Because nobody ever mentioned it to me. I didn't even know there was an AA. What were you doing? Were you like just walking around the streets, Skid Row? Were you sleeping? I was sleeping in the park. Really? Mm -hmm. 
And so what did you do? You found a pay phone or what? No, there's no such thing as a pay phone. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> and if you had 25 cents, you weren't going to buy a pay phone. Yeah. My wife and her mother came looking for her father and they found me and him, uh-huh. but he died there in Skid Row. Oh, right. And I got home and for some unknown reason, a voice said, call Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous in those days, whoever you answered the phone became your sponsor. You didn't have a choice like today. You can have anybody you want for a sponsor. But back then, whoever answered the phone, and he was a paint salesman when I came into AA. And by the time I did my fourth and fifth step, he was a Catholic priest. Wow. And my parents hate Catholics. Yeah. But they thought he was the Pope. (laughs) Because he did give me a new life. Tell me a little bit about that first week or so in AA, the guy, you called him, the guy, what happened? Well, I called Alcoholics Anonymous because I came out of Skid Row and a voice said, call AA. And I didn't know AA, whatever AA. And Mm -hmm. to me today, I can say it was God centering into my life and saying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to straighten out your life. That's what I believe today. Okay. I called AA and this guy answered the phone said, get to the office. Do you know how to get there? And I I said, I think so. And I did. And he took me home. And then from there for the next five years, he picked me up every evening at my home and took me home after the meetings. Really? Every day for five years? For five years. Wow. So you got a big, heavy introduction. That's more than 90 and 90 a lot of times. (laughs) I don't even know what that is. They didn't even talk about 90 or 90 back in those days. But Back then, 50% of the people stayed sober the first time, and the other 50, after many, many drunks, or maybe mostly died a lot Uh back in AA in the old days. Uh, But he was adamant that that wasn't going to happen to me, and I would try and hide from him. And my wife would say, the native is restless, and Peter would say, I'll find him. And he knew exactly where I was, and that was God knowing uh, where I was and referring it to Peter because he shouldn't have known where I was. Yeah. I was maybe in a bar or maybe in a, a whorehouse, I guess you would call them in those <laughs> days, <laughs> getting drunk, and uh, uh-huh. he would always find me. What were the meetings like? Were they discussion meetings, speaker meetings? How many people were there? They were all speaker meetings, and they were all full, and they were all Second World War vets, pretty much. And the smoke would go up, and the smoke would go down, and then you wouldn't see the speaker, but you would hear this, Hi, my name's Bob, and he's smoking. I've been sober in the program since 1944. (laughs) And then they go on and tell a trunk-a-log for 40 minutes or 50 minutes. And everybody was dodging bombs and bullets and everything like that. And then we would go downstairs for coffee and sandwiches. And that's where I'd see all these little pretty girls. Yeah. And I would try and stay there. But Peter would be saying, we're going home. To your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to my wife and to my children. (laughs) And that went on for probably with him taking me to a meeting for the first three years. And it was only men in the meetings, correct? No, there were women. The women were were just as bad as the men. The women all smoked and they were all, they were bad ladies. I mean, they they were taking advantage of us poor boys. (laughs) I mean, especially the new ones. Yeah, they were all, this is all Second War people coming into AA in the 50s, you know. So they, they knew life and they had, 
and the women were the same. They had really powerful stories to tell about what happened in in the war and things like that because a lot of them volunteered. Okay, and cool. so we're all in AA. But I got to say that we were all pretty happy, joyous, and free. And there, there, once you went in AA back in those days, you weren't going to get out unless you died. Yeah, because they always had somebody wanting to take you home yeah. or we ha- we'd leave the meetings after the meeting and then we would go out 30 or 40 young people and we would go to a, a bar that had a dance and they allowed us to be there because they'd see us coming and they'd bring in about 60 Cokes and lay it on the table and we laughed and danced and had a good time and went home. Wow. And did the groups have names back then? Oh, yes. Our name was the Pine Hills Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we were named after a cemetery, which next door to us, uh-huh. and it was called the Pine Hills Cemetery. So our motto in AA back in those days, if we can't save you, we'll bury you. I want to ask you about the word God and what your thoughts were when you got there and you learned that it was a spiritually based program and God was kind of going to be the focus in the deal. What were your thoughts on that? I never really paid any attention to God because there was too many women in the program and there was too much fun going on in the program, but they all talked about God. God is either, as they would quote the page 53 and 133 all the time, God is either everything or he's nothing at all. What's your choice to be? And then 133 was and is today when asked, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Well, then after they would say that, then they'd say, now get back to the steps and change your life. (laughs) And that's what they talked about. They would go by the steps. You go through the first three steps and then the next three steps. And they kept doing them until you knew what it was, until you get it from your head to your heart. And it takes a long time to get it. Well, it took me a long time to get it to my heart. How long did it take? Probably about 12 years. 12 years. But I still was going to meetings every day, but, and I was getting to know God, but God wasn't really, I had a choice between a skirt and God, and God wasn't around. Yeah. And then one day it, uh, it just happened, and I found out that God is, through the program, I guess it programmed me to realize that God is everything or he's nothing at all, and I better get to know God. And therefore, I, in AA, talk about God a lot, and a lot of people don't like the fact that I talk about God all the time. Well, I love it. Well, the people <laughs> that know God and love it, they, but they, it's like everything else in AA today, we want to talk about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, and then... The first one loses, of course, because then we play, can you top that? What about your anonymity in the early days? Were you trying to protect that? Were you telling your friends and family? I mean, your family knew you were in AA, but were you telling your business associates or were you trying to closely guard the fact that you were in AA? I never told anybody outside AA that I was in AA. Okay. Until maybe about four or five years. And I was, got my first sales job and I didn't even know how to sell. And... Uh, the guy said, I think you can sell. You just have to get outside of yourself and try. <clears throat> and the first call, I can tell you, I can still remember the first call, and I'm 85. And I went into the store. I was selling uh, toys and things like that and all kinds of little gifts. And the guy said to me, what do you want? That's the owner. And I said, oh, I want to buy that little knickknack over there. And I did that for four or five times. And then my sponsor said, you've got to ask for the order. Then I started to ask for the order from this company. 
And uh, within three years, I was their executive vice president because of AA and God. Yeah, because you had God had put you back together. Yeah, and they told me I had to ask for the order, and I got through God to ask for the order. And uh, that's what happened. And it can happen for anybody, but you have to have God in your life. That's the I talk about God all the time in AA because to me that's the foundation for me. And the steps allow me to change each and every day, even now, to be a better Bob, hopefully, because that's all I really want to do. I want to be able to, like Bill said, I was next to Bill in 1965. I sat at his table because our group was sponsoring the convention and they because I was one of the youngest people, they put me next to him. And uh, <clears throat> it was supposed to be a big honor, but I was looking at the girls three tables over, but I got the drift from it, that either God is everything or he's nothing at all. And from that time on, that's pretty much, if anybody that I sponsor or knows me, I just talk about God. So what, what he's talking about, listener, is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson. He's telling the story about how he actually met him at, in person and sat next to him at a dinner. That's super exciting for me that you met him. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I hold him in super high regard <laughs> because I would be either dead without him, in jail without him, or institutionalized or still drinking, which are all four horrible choices for me. And I feel like he was in divinely inspired to meet Dr. Bob and start this program and get you sober and me sober and Scott sober and millions of other people. And and he was and he uh, he wasn't a great speaker or anything. Yeah, he just spoke and you knew that he was for some unknown reason you knew he was right. <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of people in AA I don't think are right or it's not my opinion anymore i don't have to have an opinion do you recall if he had an aura about him or electricity about him or was he just a regular dude no he had electricity about him we had to have three people in the conference in 19 the international conference in 1965 we had three bodyguards next to him because people were trying to take things from him and they'd take <laughs> his handkerchiefs or they wanted to speak to him and we're in a conference with at that time 10,000 people and they all wanted a little piece of Bill and Bill was so humble and uh, he tried to talk to everybody but he could of course he couldn't yeah what about Lois was she there his wife yeah but she would always sit in the thing she never really participated at all until I guess when Al-Anon came she was the big Al-Anon queen mm -hmm. but when she was at the conference with Bill she wasn't really that important it's amazing I'm mm -hmm. so excited to be sitting in a room with somebody that actually met Bill Wilson <laughs> it might not seem like that big a deal to you but it is to me <laughs> it feels good to me to be next to you <laughs> Well, sometimes I mention it and they all go blah, blah, blah. But others say, you were blessed. And, yeah. you know, the thing about when I talk, I am blessed. I've been blessed by God. Yeah. And that's why in my book and when I talk, I, at a meeting, I always talk about God. And people say, oh, you and your God, that's all you ever talk about. And I usually say to them, what, is, what else is there? Yeah, it's all we got. Mm -hmm. It's all people like you and I got. So let's talk about sponsorship for a minute. Back in the early days when you came in, were they using the word sponsor? Or, tell me a little bit about that. They were using the word sponsor. And however, 
the word sponsor was only used for the people that had over a year because they felt they were the only people that were knowledgeable enough to sponsor another person. Today, we can have anybody talk to one person to start with. But back then, you had your sponsor, and that's who you had. And so they didn't uh, say, go out and help other people, or unless they would do, they would say, did you hear that person? And nine times out of ten, I would say no, because the person was speaking, and he said, that person's hurting. You need to go over and talk to him, because he's a young member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I heard that three times, and then I picked it up. I guess God put that in my head, that when somebody, anybody reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA of God to be there, and then for that I'm responsible. But I, I took that even at a young person, so that I was the greeter for all young people coming into the Pine Hills group. Can you mention what Bill introduced at the international conference when you were there, the responsibility <clears throat> statement? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, he gave, I've, like I was sitting, and that's when he said, uh, AA is becoming larger. And we only had maybe about 14,000 people there. And he said, each and every one of you sitting in this chair, in a chair, is responsible for the growth of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's when he repeated it. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I'm responsible. And that was a big thing back then because it wasn't big prior to Bill saying all of that. We would help people, but we, it wasn't a priority. I mean, my priority was a lot different than trying to help another alcoholic, I can tell you that. And that's when we started to uh, have greeters uh, <clears throat> at the meeting. We, in our group, we had uh, 12 greeters as you came in the door. And then they, they were responsible to take you to a chair or chairs and put you next to somebody that had sobriety. I want to tell you a quick vignette personal story that I have in relationship to the responsibility state that you just made I uh somewhere in early sobriety maybe between nine and 13 years I thought I was Mr. AA for a minute <laughs> and so what I thought because I had seen that sign that said uh when anyone anywhere reached out for the hand of help we want alcoholics anonymous to be there I misread it and I thought it said when anyone anywhere reaches out for the hand of help I want Michael to be there <laughs> and so I had spread myself thin I was sponsoring like 30 dudes and uh I was cheating uh a lot of areas of my life. I was going to like uh, maybe 14 meetings a week. I mean, I was just really steeped in, in uh, maybe overcommitment to service. And I was maybe kind of hiding out a little bit in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not speaking ill of it, but I figured out uh, later when I started thinking about balance and boundaries in my life that maybe I needed to look at quality versus quantity. And uh, I was able to reassess that. I want to talk to you a little bit about how you worked the steps the first time that you went through them, if you recall. Was it a formal process? Was it pen to paper with your sponsor? Was it verbal? How did you actually sit down and get the wheels turning on steps one through 12? Well, I've had the same sponsor. I have. I had 59 years in on December, and this, whatever December was, and my sponsor had like uh, 59, and he died quite after that. So once I got 60 years in the program, I realized a long time ago how I even got through Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm a, 
I'm not a student of the big book, but I, I study it each and every day because it is my power, because it comes from God. And my only responsibility in life is to help the still-suffering alcoholic. But not, more importantly, anybody that reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there, and for that I'm responsible. And it was used all the time, and my sponsor brought it to me a little bit at a time and said, Bob, first thing you do, you're going to be a greeter now. You greet everybody that comes in through the door, and you tell them to have a, a great evening. Well, I wasn't even having a great evening, <laughs> but I would put on this smile and say, welcome to the Pine Hills group. <laughs> and if it was a young girl, I really wanted to welcome her. But uh, the other six people there would say, Bob, she deserves to stay sober, too. Yeah, stay away from her. <laughs> so that's how it worked. And a little by slow, you you get into this program and you find out that it's God-given and through everything we get, it comes from God. And for me, the 12 steps, because it allowed me to change my life, which I never thought that I'd be able to do. Yeah, I learned the definition of the word grace in here. Mm -hmm. The definition of the word grace is an unearned gift. And it took me a while, a few years in here mm -hmm. to realize that, you know, my sobriety is, is pure grace by my higher power. It's an unearned gift that was given out of love and compassion and maybe for me to turn around and try to help other people. Well, you got that right, because it says by the grace of God, right? And so it's a God-given program, and we, ha we get the grace each and every day to be able to go out and help another alcoholic. How, let's talk about sponsorship now as far as you sponsoring people over the years. Has your style of sponsorship changed over the years, or have you remained consistent? Mine has changed a lot, but you tell me how yours has morphed. Well, in the early days, your, your, the sponsor was somebody, usually they, uh, because I was young in AA, they bring all the young people to me. And at the beginning, I used to say, get lost, this is my meeting. But a little by slow, my sponsor said, you've got to greet them, take them to a, a seat, talk to them, and make them feel comfortable in the group. And... and uh, <clears throat> I was a fireman, so I, at that time, and I, you know, I was a pretty tough guy, I think, or thought I was, and it was hard for me to have the grace to do those things, and it was only through all of that that I learned the grace to be able to help another human being and do it with love, not with what my sponsor said I had to do. Can you talk to me, you've been sober for a long time, can you talk to me about what your view is like from your personal perspective when you are sponsoring someone and you see one of your sponsees' lives get repaired and made whole again? Maybe the wife comes back, maybe the kids come back, whatever else. I don't know how you want to look at it, but when you see somebody pulled back from the, the depths of, of alcoholic death and, and their life is rebuilt, how does that make you feel as an observer or sponsor to see that? Well, I... I love it when a sponsee does that. But you see, the thing, the most important way that I sponsor is I try to bring God into it right away. And of course, most of them are going to fight it until they realize that our book says God is either everything or is nothing at all. So a lot of people that I sponsor, I let them do the talking and then I try and say, have you thought of this? Because I'm going from the step part of it. Have you thought of this? And little by slow, 
they get to it and then they're able to share it with other people. So it's just a long line of people sharing with people. Hopefully they're talking about the steps in God. Today, uh, today's AA meetings, we may have 50 or 60 people and maybe two people mention God. Yeah, it's not God's, good enough. God's not that important to the new Vo people. And it's kind of sad because you see them with 20 years and they're very unhappy people. I have seen that. You will see it. If you've got God in your heart, you're going to see in meetings all over the place the people that seem to be happy, but they just don't have that X factor. And I tell people would say to me, how come you're always happy, joyous and free? I said, the book tells me that. Yeah, And I can only do that through God. And I have to get down on my knees to get on my feet. And right now, me and my knees don't get up very easy. <laughs> and But that's the only way I can start the day. And God is love. And that's what I have to try and project to the people that I'm working with. I also call them out. I mean, I'm, I have probably a lot of them at long-term sobriety that didn't love me a lot <laughs> but they learned a lot because they go home and practice it and find out that it works and uh, but they'd always say why do you have to talk about god you mentioned earlier when you said you start to um, sponsor new people that you try to bring god into it right away can you maybe mention a, a, a tool or two that you use to do that to bring god into the sponsee sponsor relationship right away well you know when somebody asks you to sp sponsor them that they've heard something that they like okay and but maybe it's just a joke or they think he's happy he's laughable he's always having fun so i want that kind of sponsor uh, so they come to me and then life changes because i go right to the book i don't have a long-term you know you're going to be okay kid thing i say okay if i'm going to sponsor you we're going to do the steps Nine times out of ten, they said, what steps? <laughs> the ones that they read every day in the meeting. Yeah. How do you do that with them? Do you do that over the phone? Do you meet with them in person? I do you meet give them writing I meet them right personally at the front. And a lot of them I meet in AA when they come to me and we talk. And then they're, we're at another meeting and they come to me and talk. And then they say, can I call you? And I say, of course you can call me. And then that, that kind of conversation and then i try and get them into sponsoring other people with 60 years sober who are you trying to sponsor right now like would you sponsor a dude that walked up to you that had two weeks or are you more sp specializing in the dudes with 30 plus years or wh what are you what are you doing i'm just an alcoholic i'll i'll sponsor anybody i'm i probably won't sponsor them but i will be available to them and i'll turn them over to somebody i'll help them at the beginning because i have a lot of sponsors sponsees mm -hmm. and i talk to a lot of them on a daily basis yeah and to me i think that's where i'm most useful because once you start to sponsor the alcoholic then if they're a family then the family sort of gets together and all of a sudden people are wondering what the hell how is the family getting together yeah. it's because our 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 belief in god and that we're able to instead of fighting them all the time and telling them they're this and they're that and get into the arguments we just realize that i can only mention god and i'm going to be okay and if they're okay with it they'll be okay and a lot of times they it takes a long time before they find god has the desire to drink or use again returned since you've been sober and if so what have you done about it it's never returned all right 
I, I, I believe that because of my sponsor. He was with me every day for the first three to five years. And also, that's what we talked about is helping another alcoholic. And he was big on that. And so, because he was big on it, he made all of us big on it. And he'd go over and say, I want you to talk to that person. And if you think you can help them, tell them that you can help them. We didn't use sponsor or anything at that time until after we started to talk to the steps. And then the person usually said, would you sponsor me? Yeah. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober? And how have you coped with it? That's a very interesting question because I don't really think I got depressed. You've been sober a long time. I just wondering yeah. if you had any anxiety or depression since you've been sober and what did you do about it? Well, did you go to counseling outside? Have you ever talked to a $150 an hour person? Or? No, I've only ever talked to my sponsor. Yeah. And like I said, I had 59 years last December and if he'd have, if he'd have lived to Jan- January, I got it on December the 7th, if he lived to January the 12th, he would at 60. Mm-hmm. So I was in contact with him all the time and he became a Catholic priest and he would always talk about love and helping other people. He said, our job is not to do inventory. What a rich resource to be able to have that man in your life. What was his name? Peter Waters. Peter Waters. Mm-hmm. And where did he live? In Oakville, Ontario. I want to bounce back to the Canadian talk for a minute. Can we talk about the foods in Canada? I know, is there anything that's specifically Canadian? I've heard of poutine. Is there anything else that you would say is specifically Canadian as far as cuisine is concerned? Roast beef dinners with your family. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On Sunday. I'd like to make a couple announcements. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that I can play back on the next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us offset and cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention a few listeners by name who have made a gift to move this project forward. Thank you, Jessica K. Thank you, Tommy B. And thank you, Tony S., I'd like to move on to listener feedback. This was given to us by Nikki L. Nikki L says, I started a few other podcasts before I found yours, and I must say, I love the format. The consistency of the questions being asked in each interview is a great way for listeners to get the understanding of the commonalities of each person as an individual. Also, the sound quality is impeccable, 100% on point. So thank you for that. I want to assure you, that I value your time and attention as a listener and our sole focus at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people and that guides everything that we do here. And now let's get back to our guests. Can you select and talk about any one of the 12 steps you would like to highlight and discuss? Yes, I'd like to uh, just really, there's other ta- there are other steps, but I just like the first three, uh, which one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand them. 
And back in the day when I first came in, they would always say the first three steps are the most important steps to you. And they would say, I can't, he can, and I'm going to let him. And now you go to four and 10 and change your life is what they would used to say, because 10 continued to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And that's really where I live and uh, on the step part when I'm talking to somebody that's new. And from then on, if I'm sponsoring somebody, we usually have a pretty good relationship because they've asked me and uh, they know where I want to talk and I want to go. I, I always want to go to God. Do you agree with the fact that the old timers used to tell you that steps one, two or three are the most important steps? Do you agree with that? Yes. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, do you agree with the statement that I hear a lot of times in AA meetings when people are introducing themselves and we've got a brand new person and then somebody else pipes up in the meeting and tells them that they're the most important person in the room? Do you agree with that? Uh, no. I don't think so. I think I'm the most important piece. <laughs> well, <kidding>. you are. <laughs> the other person coming in there is important, yeah. but we don't know yeah. enough to make what's important until we get to know them. Right? I just am always curious when people say that, you know, you hear somebody pipe on me, like, you're the most important person. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, what do you, I was like, Bob's here. What are you talking about? <laughs> they, they never thought that. Trust me. Yeah. They That's would, new- they would always say, you try this program for 30 days. And after that, then we'll talk about the program. Oh, really? They mm. said that? Mm. What they mean by that? They meant that you come in and sit down okay. and listen okay. for 30 days, yeah. and then your sponsor will come and start a step with you. And maybe they had step meetings at that particular time, so you were allowed to go to the step meeting. Because you couldn't go to the step meeting until your sponsor told you you could. Was daily attendance expected or mandatory? I mean, it was with you. Maybe they thought you were super sick, but did they tell everybody, Every, see you tomorrow night? Yeah, everybody. everybody back then. I would say for my first 12 years, and then we expanded, so there was more and more groups, and so there was less need to do the things like that so that we would just get back to our own group and talk about our own group. Were you a smoker? No. No. Okay. What are your feelings, how things have progressed since your early days and now where most of the vast majority of the groups are non-smoking now? Do you, do you like that? Well. Uh, Did it bother you? Did the smoke? The, it bothered me. Did it bother you? No. I, I drank in bars and stuff like that. <laughs> I had smoke. I, I had smoke inhalation from the cigarettes, for goodness sake. I've okay. never smoked a cigarette. Okay. You see, and I always just think that's just a big excuse. Yeah. Would you be okay if they crank smoking back up in all the meetings now? You wouldn't, wouldn't care? bother me. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Curious. You know, but I would think that probably 80% of the people in AA would quit <laughs> yeah. because it's their right. Yeah. I want to dig in deep on step 11, if you don't mind. I'm mm. going to read step 11 for you right now. It says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. What styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you using today? The first thing I do in the morning when I awaken and still in my bed, I invite God into my life. What do you say exactly? Say, good morning, God. Who do we help today? That's my prayer. And then normally my phone rings. May sound simple, (laughs) but that's what I use because I'm starting God's day and it's not 
what can you do for me? It's what can I do for you? That takes a lot of pressure off of you, right? Now, of course it does. I have no pressure. <laughs> Why would I have any pressure if yeah. I'm saying to God, I want to help you? Well, if you right? did it the other way, if you flip-flopped it and said, God, what can you do for me today? There's going to be a lot more pressure on him and you. <laughs> no, he didn't, wouldn't be under any pressure. <laughs> what about meditation? Let's talk about meditation. Where are you at on that? What are you doing? Well, at the beginning, because my sponsor was a priest, he would come over and we would talk for a little bit. And then his idea of meditation is to think about what your day was all about and was God part of it. And of course, God was not part of it when I first came in. Yeah. Until the thinking process got to me that God is either everything or nothing at all, and I better get to know who God was. And then once I did that, and it was pretty early in AA, I was pretty crazy in AA when I first started out. But once I got the God concept, I really dug into that because I figured that's the way it is. He He's the creator of everything. And if I invite him in, he's going to help me. And that's what I believe. And he's going to let me know, whomever I talk to, that I'm getting the word from him. There's a ton of people that look at you specifically as their AA hero or mentor. So I want to flip the role or flip the question back to you. Do you have any AA mentors or heroes that you look up to? They're all dead. They're all dead. Okay. It's a fair answer. There's nobody like the old, old, old AA. Yeah. Me, myself coming up, I... um I have some AA heroes and mentors and they're guys that I just love and respect and they're long-term sober, you know, and that's impressive to me. And that's, that's exciting to me. That's a shining beacon off in the distance, like a lighthouse to a mariner. I'm like, that's it. That's where we're going. <laughs> that's I'm going that way. And, and I'm sure a lot of people look at you like that. So yeah, I think they do. And I think the thing about all of that is, is the programs, we grow in understanding and effectiveness. It's not an overnight matter. It continues for a lifetime. So you're never going to finish. And if you're going to AA and God's in AA, he might give you something that you need that day. Yeah. And if I'm not there, then I'm going to miss it. Yeah. And I need to hear from God every day. What has been your toughest challenge in sobriety and how have the 12 steps helped you with that challenge? That's a very tough question because when I first came into AA, I wasn't really big on the steps or, or anything. I was just fellowship. And so if you're just fellowship, uh, there's no apparent change in you because you're hanging around with people that you like and you're not growing in understanding. You're just hanging around with all those people. So it wasn't until uh, I really got into life with my sponsor and he didn't rush me into God. He just kept telling me that he is the only thing. He's your God. I mean, he's your father. He's going to guide you into life and you're not going to want what he, you're not going to want what he has until you want what he has. And once you get to want what he has, then you'll have no problems whatsoever because God is either everything or he's nothing at all. And it's, it's a tough thing because today we don't talk about God that much in AA anymore. It's uh, more of the nouveau people that want to just talk about themselves and a lot of it's silly. And sometimes I can hear 10 people in AA before a step is even mentioned or the program. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a different AA than when I came in. They were 
they kept us corralled into the 12 steps and the, and the, and the promises and the 12 traditions. What is, a, what is your meeting attendance currently look like and why is going to meetings important? Well, I probably still go to at least five meetings a week. Okay. And I go because if I give God that hour, he gives me 23. And there's usually a lot of people that I can get to talk to for a few minutes. Whether it does them any good or not, I'll never know because they're the ones that come to me. And uh, <clears throat> I want to be available because that's what God is. He's available. What are your thoughts on the importance of a home group? I think the home group is really where you get involved with the 12 steps with your home group and, and the growth that we all come in at a certain time and the people that come in with you, we watch ourselves grow with each other and we, uh, <clears throat> we listen to certain people in a home group that uh, talk about the program and talk about God. And if you are, and I'm not taking the inventory of AA because I'll never do that because it works still, but we don't talk about God anymore in AA. Most of the, us are talking about, I went shopping the other day or I just bought new furniture and uh, the newcomer's gone. Yeah, well, I don't even have furniture. Uh, so it's a different time and I can't, I can't, I can't say it's wrong. It's just where the people are. And I came in in a time when God was the most important part. Our meetings were the most important part. And going out and help other alcoholics was the most important part. I did 12-step calls when I first came in for the first 15 years, probably at least four times a week. Can you tell me a story of anything that you recall about any of those hardcore 12-step calls back then? Can you share any stories about that? Lots of me, you, you, you share the story with them and they say, yes, 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 yes. And uh, you leave and they come back to your meeting and uh, they're good for a couple of days and then they're back out doing what they were doing before. But all we can do is plant the seed. We don't carry, well, I don't, we don't carry the alcoholic. That The alcoholic's free white and can do whatever they want. But it's all in your head to begin with anyway, and then you process it, and whatever comes to your heart, that's what you're going to use. Well, how did Alcoholics Anonymous change with the advent of treatment centers coming on the scene in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Did you notice a difference? Sure. Nobody gets sober anymore. <laughs> well, it's spicy. Mm -hmm. Well, they end up in the treatment center, and then they try and bring the treatment center to AA, and it doesn't work. Yeah. They use words like triggered. <laughs> All kinds of things. Okay. I want to shift our attention to the promises. Uh, I'm going to read the ones that are commonly referred to on 89, but there's tons of other ones. So while I read these promises. I want you to be thinking about uh, if you can give me an example of one of these promises coming true in your life. There's many more promises in this in the big book, but I'm going to read this one. Page 89. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. 
we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Can you speak to the promises, please? Well, if you look at the promises and you're new in the program, they, uh, they don't mean too much or it's gonna, it takes a while to, to get there or it took me a long time anyway because I wasn't really interested in the promises. The first part to me is if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Painstaking means that we have to go to the meetings to find out what the steps mean and how we get them from our head to our heart. And that's the longest journey is the 12 inches from your head to the heart. But once we start and we get a little bit of it, then we want more. And it says we're going to know that this new freedom and a new happiness, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We find out that Alcoholics Anonymous says we want you to be happy, joyous, and free. But if you're an alcoholic, we say, no, thanks. I like the pain. I'm talking about me in early days in AA because I had a lot of pain and, and I suffered from it until I gave in to God. And the promises were that I could change my whole life and I can help others to do the same thing. And that's the most important thing to me. See, we, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away, which means I get outside of myself. I don't need to be in Bob Katie. I don't need to think that I'm great. I don't need to think anything. I'm just a fellowship member. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wherever God puts me in each and every day is where I'm going to go. And they're not always the same. And whoever comes to say they want to talk to me for a minute, I'm able to go to the promises and let them know what can happen long before they probably even do the steps. And I say, if you do the steps, the person you're changing is you. You're not changing anybody else. And that's the most important because when you change that and you find out God is everything or nothing at all, then you got the promise, which means now we have to go out and share with the other person. I want to turn our attention to the literature, the big book or the 12 and 12 or the Bible or whatever you want to talk about. As far as literature, I see you brought some stuff with you. Can you pick anything out of the book that you would like to share with us? And while you're digging through your book and your literature, I'm going to read my favorite paragraph in the big book. Page 43, and it's from a chapter called More About Alcoholism. And it's the last paragraph on page 43. Here we go. Once more. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a power. His defense must come from a higher power. And that speaks to me profoundly and boldly and always has. It just jumped off the pages at me when I was uh, reading the big book the first few times. And it just tells me that I better figure out a way to get in touch with a higher power and put that higher power between me and the drink. So I'm not fighting the drink. God is between me and the drink and protecting me. Is there anything else in the literature that you'd like to point out? Any other books that you've got got us to take a look at? Yes, there is. It's called The Good Book and The Big Book. Uh, AA Roots in the Bible. Can I see the cover of it? The Good Book and the Big Book, Holy Bible and Alcoholics Anonymous. Who's it written by? Tell us about it. Uh, It's written by a guy named Dick B. And the foreword was Bob Smith. But that was the son of the co-founder and his wife, Ann. They both all were responsible for the writing of it. Tell me about it. What's the deal with that book? Well, it, it lets you know that 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is everything uh, because we we need God. So what they've done is to write with Dr. Bob, and I'll just I'll just turn it over to one thing. Let your light shine, Matthew 5, 13, 16, suggests glorifying your heavenly Father by letting others see your good works. That is letting you light your light shine. Does not mean glorifying yourself. It's really a good book. Nice. You read that every day or once a week? Well, or? I read it about once a week. Yeah. Because I, the thing about me is that it sort of makes my wife a little mad. My phone starts to ring about quarter to eight, and then it goes on, and then I just stop, and I, you know, have to get. I want to get dressed. I want to read for myself, and then go to a meeting. Yeah. Do you use those Hazelton meditation books that a lot of people do? No, I don't do that. You don't use. They're those good. Either. I'm sure they're. You know what? I'll look at it this way. <laughs> I have 60 years in the program, I'm pretty set in my ways, and I got a lot of good things that I think that can make me happy, joyous, and free. I don't need to add on to everything. I need to experience it so it gets from my head to my heart. I'm going to read something that I, it's not a literature and it's not a approved, but it was given to me by my sponsor, and it says, How God Answers the Soul. It is my nature that makes me love you often, for I am love itself. Is it my longing that makes me love you intensely? For I yearn to be loved from the heart. It is my eternity that makes me love you long, for I have no end. And that's a prayer I read every day. And it's just about God. And who gave that to your sponsor? Uh, he gave it to me. It's written by Mick Child Megenberg. And that's, that's one. Of, and it's right in the very beginning. I pasted it right in the very beginning of my book. What else you got in there? I'm sure that's a treasure trove of information. What else you got in that big book? Well, here's another one I like. We don't have to be perfect. We have to be whole. If you stumble, make it part of the dance. What else you got? Let's keep going. I know you got a lot of hits in there. Two important days in your life, the day you were born and the day you find out why. I can go on and on and on and on and on. It probably makes people bored, but these are things that I picked up in 60 years of Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe even in, in my church. I want to hear more. The river of the Spirit will take you around any obstacle or by force remove it. These are things that I picked up from other people that I loved and I would go to them and ask them why, because I wasn't a God person when I came in here. I was not anti-God, but I just always felt, God, you do your thing over there, I'll do my thing over here. And it wasn't until God became everything that these things came into my life by virtue. I would hear it from somebody, and I'd go over and talk to them about it. I guess I wanted to learn because I would hear it like, in meetings where a guy was the speaker or something like that, not an AA, but other business speaker, and you talk about certain things, I'd go ask them why. And they always told me what they, they meant. My God is the God of the impossible. Comes down, we say it in AA, is either everything or he's not, nothing at all. But I, I take up from other people that aren't in AA, we're not the only, only people trying to get God. There's millions and millions of people that have already got there. The things that I'm afraid of are terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, and God is the only one that can remove it. 
And I got all kinds of junk in here. You probably don't want to hear. I want to hear all of it. <laughs> I want to hear all of it. And you, you're doing exactly what I hope that a guest or every guest will do is when I ask that question to dig into what speaks to you in your sobriety. And it doesn't necessarily have to be conference approved. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the big book. It can be from the Bible. It can be from an app. It can be from a TV show, whatever, just mm-hmm. whatever speaks to you. Okay. Here's another one I love. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's in the trying we succeed. It's not about being sober. It only takes a requirement to have a lifetime change. And I believe that has to come from God, that I have to do that through the steps in order to change what I want from God. And here in the very beginning of the book, I always love that one. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered. We're not recovering. We recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book, which is not used anymore. I love that you hit that. I want to speak to that real quick. There's a debate going on within our society. A lot of people get offended when they hear the term recovered. They say, I'm not recovered. I'm recovering. Well, I want to say something real quick about that. The term recovered is used 16 times in the big book, four times in the 12 and 12. There is nothing to argue about. It's in the books. Here are the places to educate yourself if you don't understand yet. And if you want to email me at mike at sobershares.com, I will email you every single page every single paragraph where the term recovered is used. I'm not trying to make anybody mad or upset anybody, but I, I, want, I want you to reach out to me at mike at sobershares.com and I will email you a direct list of where it's used 16 times in the big book, four times in the 12 and 12 for a total of 20 times. It's okay to use the word recovered in Alcoholics Anonymous. What else you got? In the foreword of the first edition, it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So it's in the book. You can't Lily dance around it. This is not treatment center AA. That's what I think it came from. I swear to God, I think it was treatment center talk where some counselor somewhere in California or something said, oh, it's not recovered. It's recovering. It's, you know, whatever, dude. Well, that's what it says in our book. Okay. I agree. So there's all kinds of little things that you pick up that, that tickle you that as you go by, we are not true to one another as facts. We are true only to our ideas of one another. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. And I, as you're reading these, I'm thinking about the thousands and thousands of people that are going to listen to this episode, and you're dropping golden nuggets of wisdom, and I just picture them writing things down on the side of the road or driving their 18 wheeler across the country and listening to you do these uh, little nuggets of wisdom. It's so exciting to hear you do this. If we hold back, we will be held back. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. (laughs) A lot of yours have little tinges of humor in them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they, they, the one thing old AA had was humor. Yeah. We were not, 
you know, we were not pathetic about, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's supposed to come from your heart. Yeah. And so all these little things come from somebody's heart, mm-hmm. you know, because they're not written in our book. But they tickled me, maybe because I'm, I suffer from, and well, I used to suffer from insanity. Now I enjoy it. <laughs> but uh, here's something in uh, XXVI, the doctor's opinion. Frothy emotional appeals seldom suffices. The message which we can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than ourselves if they are to recreate their lives. That's in the book. This is the one they used to UNAA all the time. Before you speak, let the words pass through these gates. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Yeah. And I use that all the time. I, I learned something similar to that in AA. It's not that exact same thing, but I think around my 12th year of sobriety, I, I heard somewhere, and it's not AA approved or conference approved, but it's somebody told me, when it comes to talking and the words that come out of my mouth, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? Does it need to be said by you? And is it kind? And if you run your words through that little regulator, you really will clean up your speech. And if you clean up your speech, you can clean up your thoughts in your life, which makes it easier. And this is just in, in the book that I'm just using right now. It's page 28, and it says, What seemed at first a flimsy, flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. That's something that I, I underline certain things that I read every day because of a short-term memory, and I don't want Bob Katie to be talking to a meeting about Bob Katie because he's not that important. All I am is the person that shares the message. What do you think about the acronym HALT? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. What do you think when you hear that? Well. I know it's treatment center talk, but mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like it's treatment center talk. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too angry. Don't get too lonely. Don't get too tired. But that's a way of life. That's not any. That's a good living tool, right? Of course it is. Okay. I just didn't know if you're going to be mad at that or not. No, it's it's not. You see, there's lots of things that people come in and add on to AA. I think AA is the foundation of all of it. And then we get to different years. I've got 60 years in the program. A lot of this stuff that I read, I've got in 1962 and I still carry it forward because to me it's truth yeah you know and it might not be to anybody else but you'll find your own truth in AA yeah as you which is God is either everything or is nothing at all yeah and this is another one here if what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all it means that all of us whatever our race creed or color are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we're willing and honest enough to try. I've read this book so many times that I've picked out things that I like because page 30 is for me as we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. If you haven't done that yet, you're not in recovery and you can't be. And it's an and elusive I, thing to get to. Sure, of course it it's is. It's an elusive thing. <laughs> I had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness before I was ready to do that. Every, everybody does. I've been married five times. And this is the lady that God gave me on my fifth try. Mm-hmm. And we've been together now for 28 years. Because it was God. Is it a, was that a picture of her? Yeah. Can I see it? Sure. Okay, slide it down here. 
What's her name? What's your Kathy? Kathy, special. Mm-hmm. Do you think she'll listen to this? Oh, she's beautiful. You think she'll listen to this? Oh, of course she will. All right, Kathy. Hello. Shout out. <laughs> your husband's awesome. <laughs> she's awesome. And here's another one. All of us have felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitable, followed by less control, which led in time to pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. Page 30. It's one of my most important parts of the book. Page 53 is really important to me. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing at all. God is either, either is or he isn't. What's your choice to be? What page is that on? Page 53. Okay. That's my, my go-to page. There's a whole bunch of things in here, but they, uh, you, they're things that I picked up over the years, and I think people need to pick them up on their own. And the other one, of course, to me is resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have been no, not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. I want to explain to the listeners what I'm seeing and what I'm looking at right now. How old is that big book that you're working with right there? <laughs> Gosh. You got an 80-something? Uh, this probably is... This probably I got in 1983, maybe, or right. Yeah, I just, I, I'm looking, I'm watching you down there at the end of the table, and it's an older big book, you can tell, and there's like all kinds of notes stuffed inside of it, and a lot of pages have actually come detached from the spine. So as he turns from page to page, he's actually picking up a physical piece of paper and laying it back down in order as he's moving through the book. That thing is well-worn and has seen some mileage. Well, you know, it's it's the big book I take with me when I'm talking to alcoholics because it's the first 164 pages. Yeah. And if you can't get through the first 164 pages, you're not going to be in AA anyway. Can we give a special shout out to the two guys that you run around with? What, tell Talk a little bit about those. What's their deal? What's those Fred guys? and Jim. Fred and Jim. What's their deal? We got together a long time ago and said, we go to the same meetings all the time. Why don't we pick a day, which is Thursday, that we go to a group somewhere in the Metroplex? And we all said, why not? And what happened is that we all have a lot of sobriety. And so when we walk in, the people are really, they'll either say, here comes the three wise men, the three stooges, mm-hmm. whatever they want to say. Yeah. But they listen because we do have a sense of the book th- between the three of us that says, even no matter how old we are, we're happy, joyous, and free. Our only deal is to share it with other alcoholics. And this is why we take one meeting a week and go in and what we usually say is terrorize the meeting. And you said it was Fred and who? Fred and Jim? Fred and Jim. Fred Jim, Jim Butterly and Fred Cook. How, how long do they have sober? Uh, Jim has 40-something years, and I think Fred's got 40. Let's talk about AA conferences for a while. What are your thoughts on AA conferences? I love them. What do you like about them? Well, I love the fellowship, and I love the ability to see people crying or standing there by themselves and the ability to walk over and say, can I help you? Yeah. It's my first conference. I don't know what I do. You're doing the right thing. Just come here and let me introduce you to a couple of people. And Because both Fred, Jim, and I, we usually are, uh, we usually are, get, we uh, volunteer to introduce ourselves to everybody that comes through the door. So 
a lot of people know us, but there's a lot of people that don't know us. And people will say to us, why does everybody know you? And I said, well, we're the Three Stooges, so it's very easy to be <laughs> recognized and things like that. Or they'll say, do you know so-and-so and we'll be able to help you. And that's what we do. We give a couple hours at every conference to try and help. What about 2025? We're all going to Vancouver in 2025, right? Be the greatest time of your life. Let's go. We're looking forward to it. And if it's meant to be, we'll be there. And if it's not meant to be, I won't be there. And, you know, Kathy always tells me, if it's meant to be there, you'll be there. And if it's not, it's not. You'll love the city. Yeah, yeah. You see, you can take the boat and go down to the island. Uh, That's where the queen visited and stayed. And it's, it's just, it's a marvelous province. Yeah. Shout out to all our Canadian listeners. We're coming at you in 2025. We'll be there. Okay. We're getting down to the end. Last question. Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? Anything you want to wrap it up? Anything you feel like we need to hit one more time? I believe this, no matter how you feel or what you're going through, reach out to someone in the program for help. Don't suffer in silence because through the program, God is either everything or nothing at all. And you'll learn love over hate. It's a gift that comes only from God. I want to ask you a quick follow-up question on step 10. I'm going to read it to you real quick. Continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. How do you do your 10th step? Is it a nightly thing for you? Is it a formal written inventory? How do you do your 10th step? It's at night when I, when I lay down, I, uh, Kathy, uh, Falls, she hits the pillow and she's gone. <laughs> okay. I mean, she's gone and I, I'll, I'll be awake till probably 12 or 1 o'clock. And that is my thing for me to do is continue to take that personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, promptly admitted it because I am wrong too. Lots what? of times, you know, and how but do I you do it. Like, how do you, is it, is I, it just something you run through in your mind or do yeah. you sit at a desk and write it? No, down? I'm in bed doing it. Okay. And I'm, I'm talking to God when I'm doing it. I'm saying I'm giving you my personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, I want to be, I I add to it, I want to be uh, prompt in admitting it. Sometimes I'm not prompt in admitting it. And I think that's the most important thing because then all the bad stuff's gone and you move forward. And if you have to apologize or that, then you apologize and say, you know, I said something the other day to you that I shouldn't have said. And here's the reason why I shouldn't have said it, but it didn't come up at that particular time. I want to thank you for joining us today on Sober Shares. It's been a moving experience, a historic event for this podcast. And I appreciate you being here and sharing your story with us. I've been looking forward to getting you on here for a long time. So I'm so stoked that you showed up today. So thank you so much. What about contact information? The best way to get me is my phone number, 972-342-8361. I've never given out my phone number on this podcast, but I think I'll try it since you did it. You did brave boy over there. I'll be a brave boy too. Well, you see, the thing is some people don't know how to get you. And in a meeting, you're surrounded and they want to talk to you and they don't know how. And if I give them my phone (laughs) number, they feel that they have a personal contact with me. Okay, well, I'm going to be a big boy like you and give out my phone number for the first time on this podcast, episode 51. Here we go. (laughs) It's 214-718-1818. And if you need to reach out to me, do it uh, kindly and gently. (laughs) Yeah. I want to finish off by reading a vision for you. It's from page 164 of our big book, and it goes something like this. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. 
Ask him in your morning meditation what he can do each day for the man who is still suffering. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, we'll see you all on the next episode of Sober Shares. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, my friends.